Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Amila Demdanovich, head of investor relations at Lead Edge Capital. In this episode, we follow Amila's journey from Slovenia to New York City. Now, usually I ask my guests a lot of questions about their career and goals and failures as their professional journey advances, and we definitely cover work. But we also start with and spend a lot of time with Amila's childhood, growing up in Slovenia, and what it was like in the early 90s to be affected by the Yugoslav Wars. What it was like when her father moved to the U.S. in her early teenage years and left their family for a few years, only to be reunited in a brand new country when she was a teenager. Now, one of the many, many reasons why I love doing this podcast is sharing beautiful profile stories and listening to someone's journey. Amila's story is an incredibly beautiful one, and I learned so much from her as a colleague, as a mother, and as a curious traveler. And as we were talking about work, she discusses having a kind and thoughtful approach. And I realized Amila's perspective, having lived a third of her life in Slovenia, a third in New York City, and now a third on the West Coast, has shaped her to be an incredible empath. There's a Pico Iyer passage that I think about during this discussion that when we travel, we open our hearts and our eyes and learn more about the world. And Amila inspires me to have a kind and thoughtful approach, not only in work, but also in life, to have goals of connection and not perfection. And that's what it's all about. And so it's no surprise that professionally, she has helped gather a very unique investor base for Lead Edge Capital. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the kind and incredibly thoughtful Amila Demjanovich. Hi, Amila. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you on. And thank you to Mitchell Green for introducing us. And we'll get into all the other people we have in common. The listeners would have heard your background in the intro. But before we get into your incredible work at Lead Edge Capital, I would love to rewind your very long highlight reel, starting with childhood. Can you share where you grew up? I was born in a very small town just outside of the capital of Slovenia called Krajn. We had a pretty small house with an amazing yard. It's kind of like being in a small town in the US, but very different at the same time, very close to the Alps. So lots of outings, lots of fun activities, lots of time on the river, lots of time in the mountains. I also have a younger brother. He's almost three years younger, but we had a lot of overlapping friends. So his friends hung out with my friends just because it was such a small town that you didn't really have a choice. All the kids moved together. We talked about this in a prior conversation, but can you share with the listeners who might not be aware of the European culture of travel schedules, what that's like, particularly in the summer? In August, everyone's on what you call collective holiday. 
you've got extended time off. My parents would always want to go home and see their parents. We just happened to be in Slovenia, but my parents, actually my heritage is from Montenegro. I had this impression of what my summers were like, which I think my mom proved to be slightly different. And I was under the impression that we either took the train or we drove to Montenegro every summer. And my mom actually corrected me that apparently more often than not, we flew. But what's interesting is I only remember being on a flight from Slovenia to Montenegro once in my life. It's so interesting what your brain imprints as the most memorable moment. But I remember our drives, which my mom said happened maybe two or three times. I remember packing everything up into the car. I remember car seat. I remember no seatbelt. My dad always drove because my mom doesn't drive. So it would be me and my brother in the back bickering. We'd usually have either my dad's sister or my mom's sister with us. And this was our journey to Montenegro every summer for as long as I could remember until 1991. So at that point, I was 10 years old. Then the war broke out. That summer, right after the war, I thought, are we going to go? And where are we going to go? Because on our journey to Montenegro, we would stop in Croatia, we would stop in Bosnia, and then we'd continue on to the mountains of Montenegro to go visit my family. And I remember my parents being like, of course, we're not going to go. Kind of a question is that? I've always been into geography. And I remember being like, I think we can go north and go through Hungary, maybe go through Bulgaria. And I was trying to come up with a map of how we can actually get to Montenegro to go see family. And here you are, Mila, around 10 years old, just wanting to go on your normal summer trip to see your family. Did your parents share their thoughts to you and your brother of how long this would be or how to think about it? The thing was, when the war in the former Yugoslavia started, I don't think anybody anticipated that it would go on for as long as it did. I don't think that anybody who actually lived in the countries that were subsequently the most impacted, Croatia and Bosnia, where most of the fighting itself happened, but the economical and the overall macro impact happened on the entire country. And in Slovenia, there wasn't any on-ground fighting, but we felt that deep impact by just the fact that Slovenia was one of the largest exporters to the southern countries. And then also, we had a lot of family. Like my uncle, my dad's brother was living in Bosnia at the time. He at the time had two young girls. So they were impacted and we were trying to figure out how do we get them out? Do they come and live in Slovenia? What happens from there on? As a kid, you're old enough to kind of understand, you feel that you know exactly what's going on, but only as an adult do you really appreciate how limited your overall experience is in that time. So we stopped going to Montenegro and then it was like, okay, now what happens this summer? A couple of summers in Slovenia. And then the conversation shifted from this will probably end pretty quickly to, I think we need to come up with a better long-term plan. My parents pretty quickly understood that that long-term plan was probably not possible for me and my brother in Slovenia because the opportunity set wasn't there. They had some friends that were a little bit older whose kids were graduating from high school and then later college, and they realized there weren't that many jobs available. The EU didn't exist at the time, so migration was considered immigration, and it was quite hard because you had refugees that were going up north from countries that were deeply impacted, and we were in this space of what do we do? It's entirely up to my parents. Well, I'm sure it's not too much of a spoiler alert, given that we're having this conversation in the States. But can you share what your parents' decision was? 
the decision was that my dad, who's got a lot of family in New York and had a very strong bond, both my grandparents and then both of my parents also come from very large families, but it's a very large, very close knit family across both. And so they both know each other. They're from the same town. So they both had a lot of overlapping connections in New York, but it was really my dad's uncles at the time. It was five of them. Two of them have since passed away. That really led the charge on, this might be your best opportunity. We can probably set you up in New York. We'll do the best we can to give you an opportunity to rebuild your life. We can't promise you anything, but why don't you come and try it out? My dad went to get a visa because you couldn't just get on a plane. Right now with a European passport, you get on the plane, you go to the US and you're fine. But back then, these countries were considered high-risk migration countries. And so you would have to get a visa. The US embassy would have to approve your visit. My dad got a visa, and I remember it so vividly because this was now about a year and a half into my uncle from Sarajevo. His family had been living with us. At the time, they had decided to continue their journey north to Sweden. And my dad decided, okay, I think I might have to do this. It seems like the best option. I don't remember exactly the date, but I remember it was a cold day. And we were like, okay, well, I guess we'll see you when you come back. My brother and I had no idea what was really happening. I mean, we knew that we weren't going to see my dad. We didn't know how long the journey was going to last, but we knew that there was going to be a little bit of a break. And then it was the three of us. It was my mom, my brother, and I. I was 11, and my brother was turning eight. And my mom, at the time, one of her sisters was living with us in Slovenia. And then my dad also had a sister in Slovenia. So we spent a lot of time with just my mom, my brother, and I, and the two aunts. My mom did the best she could, but I think the hardest part was as time continued, we weren't really sure how we were going to make it to the US. It was quite complex because the immigration setup was quite complicated and we didn't really know what the path was going to look like. It's crazy for me to think that you and your brother were around the ages of where my kids are now, but you remember it so vividly. The way you're describing it so clearly had an impact on you even now, 30 years later. And so then what happened? Your dad already left. How long did it take for the rest of you to join him? We were always told, oh, we're going to the U.S., but we had no idea. So one month turned into six months, six months turned into a year, a year turned into a year and a half. And eventually, two plus years later, my dad moved in 1992 and my brother, my mom and I followed in early 1995. We finally made it to the U.S. I remember there was this one interaction because... My parents really liked fresh milk and fresh milk meant that it was unpasteurized and you actually went to a farm and you had like a milk pail and you'd go and pick it up and they would literally pour you warm milk that had just been milked from a cow. It was super fresh. We had divided up and I can't remember who did which nights. I was picking up milk with one of my friends and my little cousin at the time. And the gentleman who was running the farm was like, are you guys ever going to make it to New York? And I remember even in that space, I think my heart was a little bit broken because that tone, I didn't really know how to express. And I think because I knew that my mom was quite fragile, I tried not to bring up too many things that were going to make her feel really bad. I remember going to bed that night and going, how dare you? How dare you ask me that question? I don't know the answer. You must know that makes me feel bad. It was a long process, but we made it to the US and life in the US was very different. Rewinding a little bit. When your dad left in 92, for those three years, were you in your home? Were, were you displaced? Or what was that for three years like? Yeah, we were in our home because 
the way the former Yugoslavia was set up is Slovenia is super up north. So if you can envision the map, it's kind of sandwiched between north of Italy, Austria, and Hungary. So very strong ties to Austria and Italy, and then Germany as well. There was a threat of being bombed by the aggressor at the time. It only lasted for a few days before it just went down south. Most of the really bad things that happen in a war, unfortunately, happen in Croatia and Bosnia. So that's where most of the people that you hear about that have died and where most of the immigration has come from has been from those two countries. So here you are, it's 1995, you're 14, 15, when it was finally approved that you would go to the States or go to New York. What was the feeling like? Were you sad to leave your home? Were you excited to reunite with your dad? What was that like? It was a little bit of everything. At that point, I was 13 turning 14. I was in a very small school with a set of friends that I had known since I was probably four or five years old. Through the full years of education, we were usually in the same class. At that point, you forged what feels like these really strong relationships that feels like I will never have these deep friendships again. So that was really hard. And then I think the hardest part was actually my mom felt I think this was a decision that she and my dad had made together. She felt that the best thing for us would be to not really know when we were leaving in fear of our response. So both my brother and I feel that something's happening, like we're packing all of our stuff. And my mom's like, oh, just to make sure that we have everything packed up and available. And I remember thinking, okay, that's not true. But again, I'm not going to push on it. And then we had an uncle who was in Croatia and he came up to help my mom pack. And I was like, this is really weird. I knew deep down inside what was going on, but I didn't really want to ask. I think I didn't want to know the truth. I didn't want that to be confirmed. And so I didn't ask. And I remember the night before our flight, my parents had a very large community that they hung out with. Everybody came over and I kept going like, mom, why is everyone here? What's their problem? What is going on? She at some point was like, oh, I think we're going to go to the US tomorrow. And I was like, what? But did you tell my teachers? But do my friends know? It all started to make sense. All the conversations I had had with my teachers the week before, the conversations I had had with some of my friends the week before, it all was falling into place. And I was like, so the teachers knew. So you told the teachers, but you didn't tell us. Okay. There were a lot of tears, a lot of tears. And then I was excited <laughs> on the receiving end. I thought, how amazing we get to hang out with our dad again. We were sold the American dream. You're in New York. It's the most incredible city on the planet. And I was like, who cares? Do I get to go to Beverly Hills because I just want to watch Dylan and Brandon? Where do they live? <laughs> <laughs> and so here you are, you arrive in New York, you reunited with your dad after three years. What was that like? How did you feel? It was amazing, but it was also incredibly emotional. I recall seeing my dad cry prior to that encounter, I think one time, and it was his brother had passed away of cancer. His brother was 21 at the time. He was still in the Yugoslavian army because it was mandatory for everyone to actually serve time. It was the first time we had gone back to Montenegro and my dad was really sad. And that was the only time I had seen him cry before our reunion. And then we were just distracted because there are five uncles. That's the immediate family on my dad's side. They were all married. Each already had at least three kids, if not more. Everyone was a little bit younger or a little bit older than us, but just perfect for us to hang out and for us to feel welcomed. And they were obviously curious about where we grew up because it was very different from where their parents grew up. There was a lot to be shared. 
And then we realized that there's a very large extended community of people from the town that my parents are from living in New York. So each week felt like we were meeting these new cousins. And a cousin was anyone who may have had coffee or may have been a sheep herder with my dad's family in Montenegro. And it was lovely. My goodness, we had no idea. We had so many amazing family members. They're all here to see us. And we got gifts and we got money. And so pretty quickly, my brother and I were like, hey, this is not that horrible. Like this doesn't <laughs> suck that much. <laughs> Incredible. Then entering, is it middle school or high school? Middle school, so junior high school. Where did you move in New York? So we moved to Queens, a little neighborhood called Rigo Park that was very immigrant friendly. Did you speak English or what was the immersion like there? It's hard to move anywhere, but let alone a different country, different school. When you're little, you don't register or recognize a lot of things. But I'm always curious, were the professionals that I interview now, they're wildly successful and ambitious, but no one knew what they wanted to be when they were 17 or 18, picking the college they went to in the major. It was all this self-discovery along the way. So what was your self-discovery like in this new middle school, then high school, and the journey to Brute College? When we got to New York, my dad's message to us was, we're going to give you a month off. That means you get a month of vacation. You can hang out with your cousins. We'll explore the city. And he definitely made an effort to take us to the highlights of the city. And it was still winter time, So some of the decorations were still on. And so we definitely had a little bit of fun. And then I remember my dad was like, all right, now it's time to go back to school. I was like, well, what do you mean? But I don't speak English. What am I supposed to do? All these questions, but then also not that many questions because my relationship with my parents was, you don't really question the authority. My parents are the authority. So you just do it. What was incredible is this notion that when you're a little bit younger, and that would be my brother who had just turned 11. There's me on the other end where I'm on the cusp. I'm 13. I'm a teenager. I'm like a very non-American teenager. I'm a very small town European teenager, a little bit unaware, definitely awkward, not fully comfortable of all the changes that are happening. And I was still figuring out who I was and just realizing, oh, I'm becoming a woman. There are all these little things. And then the school we went to in Slovenia was very small. We went to two different schools because my brother was still in elementary school. One of my dad's friends at the time came with us to sign us up. They had given me a math equation, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but the dean had put it in front of me. Mr. Friedman was his name. And he was like, can you do this? Because it's very clear that I don't speak English, so I have to go into ESL. But then the deciding factor was what math level does she go into? And so he puts it in front of me and I was like, I did this three years ago. Yes, I can do this. I do the math equation, give it back to him. And he was like, you know, the Eastern Europeans are really crushing it in math. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I have none of the lingo that you're using as a teenager, right? I don't know. And then I remember I walked to school and I was very lucky because during that same time, the former USSR was going through a breakup as well. So there was a very large influx of immigrants coming in from Eastern Europe and Colombia at the time had had a lot of issues as well. So a huge influx of immigrants coming in from Latin America. And we were all in this one group. Some people spoke English. A lot of people spoke Spanish and or Russian. I didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't speak Russian. And nobody could really figure out a way to place me because for all intents and purposes, I looked Eastern European. So I must have been Russian. But I go, I don't speak Russian. I'm from Slovenia. And they'd go, you're from Pennsylvania and you don't speak English? Who from Pennsylvania doesn't speak English, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I was learning the American geography along the way as well and the experience. It was quite entertaining, but I remember every morning I woke up with a lot of anxiety of what's my next morning going to be like? What's the day going to be like? Am I going to be able to find my classroom? Will I be able to put my stuff into my locker room? The everyday things that I think most middle school children think of. The school was very large, but the ESL program was quite small. And so I got very lucky and I made friends with two girls that lived very close to where my parents lived. I mean, it was so cute because we didn't have phones. We had home phones, but you didn't have a cell phone or a beeper or none of that really was available. We would talk about a time that they would meet me in front of my building and I would go meet them. And they spoke Russian. I was barely learning English, but we would walk to school together. My first experience at friendships and how to start from the beginning and just holding on to that support network every morning to be like, they're here. I don't have to be alone. (laughs) (laughs) Fast forward to the decision-making process of how you chose the college you went to and why. I love people. Like I love connections. I also love geography. I always enjoyed understanding different cultures, traditions, politics. Coming out of high school, I thought I would take a year off. That was one thought. And then the second thought was maybe I'll go and become a lawyer. And I told my dad, I'm like, I'm going to take a year off. And he was like, not in this household, you won't. So if you're going to take a year off, you have to leave. And I was like, to go where? I'm working at a shoe store. I was getting paid about $9 an hour. Where am I going? And he's like, well, then you know what happens next, right? So I went through the application process and I applied to St. John's and I thought I'm going to be a lawyer. My first semester at St. John's, I realized that I was really good at math. I mean, I knew I was really good at math, but then I just knew I was really good at math when our first exam, I had the highest grade in math class and everyone else was like, how is that even possible? The class average outside of you is 63. I don't know. And then I'd go to my legal classes and I thought, oh God, this is boring. I just cannot do this. It's just not what I want to do. I don't want to memorize all these cases. And I just want to prove my point. I just want to tell you why I don't think that's right. So again, this is probably not the right place for me. I think the added layer of my family dynamics is that we continue to have a pretty complicated immigration case. They just followed me through a big chunk of my educational years, and then it stepped into my professional life a little bit as well. School was expensive. College was expensive. It's all relative at this point right now because tuition is significantly more expensive now than it was 20 years ago, but my parents didn't have the money. So I had wanted to go to NYU. I was really set on applying to NYU and I really wanted to try. And I thought, I think I can get in, but if I get in, I don't think we can pay for it. It was a combination of, we couldn't really get a loan and I wouldn't qualify for financial aid. And then I wasn't sophisticated enough where I didn't have the right tools or the right mentors to guide me towards lots of other options. Because I think in hindsight, There were so many different ways to get access to funding at a lot of great colleges. So then I was like, I'm just going to apply to Baruch. It's a great school. It's a local school. It's got a great reputation. So I transferred out of St. John's my first semester and started at Baruch. I had a lovely experience. It's a commuter college, incredibly diverse, which I loved. I made lots of new friends. I think by that time, I'd grown into my own. I still had no idea what I was going to do professionally. The more conversations I had, the more I understood that there's so many different options. At some point in my life, I wanted to be a seamstress. I wanted to be a teacher. I clearly wanted to be a lawyer. Even coming out of college, I was majoring in finance and international business with this notion of leaving New York and settling 
in another English-speaking country, probably London, England. As luck would have it, as I was graduating college, a family member at the time was working for Julian Robertson. He came over to hang out with my parents and he said, oh, there's a hedge fund and they're looking for some help. It's three partners. The CFO is a partner and he's really looking for some help. Do you want to meet them? And I thought, I don't even know what that is, but okay. You work with Julia Robertson? That is so cool. I cannot believe you work with Julia Robertson. Is she amazing? And he goes, no, no, it's Julian Robertson. He's a hedge fund mogul. I don't know. That's just not my world. It's just not the space I was moving in. And I kept thinking, you don't know what you're talking about, dude. Like you obviously clearly <laughs> never met her. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe you work there and you've never like made an effort to say hi to her. <laughs> A week later, I was at my shoe store job because why not? I'm going to do sales and I'm really good at it. And I get the call from Benki, the CFO at the time, one of the most incredible people, incredibly inspiring and truly was very supportive of what I wanted to do professionally, which was lovely. He calls and he says, we'd like to make you a job offer. How do you feel about it? And I said, oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited. I really appreciate it. And then I got off the phone and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Then welcome to the world of finance and hedge funds. And of all ones, certainly under the tutelage of Julian Robertson is not a bad place to start. How lucky. How lucky. What was your role at Eastern Advisors and, and how did that transition to lead edge where you are today? Eastern Advisor was like a blank canvas. I came in and I was supporting the CFO and working very closely with the trader because it was a small team and we were at the time luxured Asia equities. I was learning everything from the beginning. Theory is very different from practice. I think once you're in that space, each day was a learning experience. What I didn't really know is that Venki's daughter was getting married and Venki was actually leaving the US for a month to have a big wedding in India for his daughter. So Venki left and for an extended period of time, about three weeks or a month into me being new to this position, I was in charge of doing everything prime brokerage related. I was booking all of our trades, communicating all of our transfer settlements with the prime broker. And then I remember I had to cover FX. I had never been to Japan. I knew what the yen was, but I had no idea what I needed to do. So it was kind of like learning everything from the beginning. And there were two people at Morgan Stanley FX, and they would call me every morning and go, Em, we need to do your FX trade. What did you guys do today? Can you send us the numbers? I think what I realized pretty early on is if you ask for help, and if you are kind and thoughtful in your approach to how you do things, there are so many people that are willing to jump in and support you. And I really leaned into that in those first few weeks. Because I didn't want to disappoint the Eastern team, but I also needed to learn how to manage my own anxiety around the responsibility I was given. I figured that was my best approach. And then from there on, I pretty quickly realized that the investor relations piece really needed some love. Everything back then was still paper and we had monthly subscriptions. And so I was kind of like, what else can I get involved in? What else can I do? It was super operational, but I'd go into all the diligence meetings. Then I realized, oh, this is a great opportunity. Wow, I am so lucky to be here. And I felt like now that I have this opportunity, it's up to me to really go deep and really work hard and see if this is what I want to do long term, one, and two, how far can I get? What am I capable of? And what are my goals? 
And then I remember at Tiger, there were so many other funds and there were so many other women, some same age, some a little bit older with more experience. There's so many different ways to do investor relations and marketing, and it varies from fund to fund. But I've historically always straddled the operational and the front office. That's been my role. And I loved every moment of it. And then Mitchell, the gentleman that I work for now, he came on between his first and second year of business school. And his vision was to launch and really do privates for Eastern because we had dabbled a little bit, but we didn't have a dedicated team that was investing in privates. One of his first days at Eastern, he came over to where I was sitting and he said, Amela, one day I'm going to run a very large private equity fund and you are going to do investor relations for me. And then we're going to spin and launch a public fund and you will continue to do investor relations for me, but we're going to grow the team. I remember so vividly looking at this guy who's 26 years old and going, sure. Fast forward about 10 or 11 years later, Lead Edge has about $5 billion. You've grown the team. And not only that, but all the things Mitchell did say have happened and you do have a public fund as well. For those who don't know or have any background to Mitchell or Lead Edge, can you describe the fund and the structure a little bit more? Of course. So you're right. We have a little bit under $5 billion of AUM. We just recently launched Fund 6. So we closed on Fund 6 earlier this year. We are private equity growth investors. When we think about our peers, there are probably a handful of funds that we can name. But I think why we're Lead Edge is so incredibly unique is that most of our capital has historically come from ultra high net worth individuals. We probably have north of 650 different relationships across the globe with current and former C-level and BP-level executives and entrepreneurs. I think what's incredible about being a part of this Lead Edge network is you realize that success comes in so many different shapes and forms. I think for a long time, I was under this impression that you had to be in finance or you had to be a real estate mogul to be successful. But this network has proven that that's actually not true. There's so many different ways to achieve success. We've historically done a lot of co-investment vehicles, a lot of primary and secondary deals. We write 25 to $100 million checks. And we focus most of our time in the US, but we've had a couple of different investments in Latin America, China, and then some in Europe as well. Some of our notable investments, most recent one that I think everyone is probably familiar with is Toast. We've done Alibaba. We have participated in Uber and Figs. Nick Square, just touch on some that I think some of your listeners will probably be familiar with. It's amazing because as you describe your role, the company, and all the things you liked in your childhood, and you're talking geography, math, connection, travel, all those things, it really is in your role. So it's incredible that you found that seat. I'm curious, now that you have an amazing private equity growth fund, you have the public fund, What keeps you motivated professionally to do more? What are those goals that you were thinking about in your teenage years? I love meeting new people. Even our relationship, for example, I think that perhaps if I was removed from Lead Edge, even if we thought about it that way, I think the connection would have come from this amazing Lead Edge network and my commitment to the team and what we've been able to build over the last decade. These conversations and the opportunity to meet new people and learn about who they are, I thrive on that and I spend most of my time with our individual investors. And I'm not shy about asking for connections. I'm excited to meet new women. That's where I've been spending a lot of my time over the last really two plus years, but the last few weeks have been forefront of what I'm doing on daily basis. 
And I'm reaching out to everyone and going, can you introduce me to two or three incredible women? And usually people are like women in finance, women who invest. And I said, no, just people that you know, that you find to be incredibly interesting, that inspire you and that you admire. And it's been amazing. And I love these conversations because I learn so much every single day just from being connected to humans. Absolutely love it. I could ask you so much more about how you think in your role and how that translates to life too. But I'll take a pause on Lead Edge. And if you don't mind switching over to the questions I ask everybody on the show, who or what inspires you? I go back to my children and my husband. I look at my children, for example, on a daily basis. And when you're a child, you don't really have much control over what goes on. But it's so inspiring to see them every morning, they wake up ready for whatever the day is going to bring to them. Happy, cheerful. Their steps even have a spring to them. (laughs) It's so admirable. When I have moments of reflection, I go, I'm going to do that the next morning. I'm going to do that tomorrow morning. I look up to my children and I learn so much from them. And then I'm sure you can read from my energy. I'm very energetic and I'm very high energy. My highs are very high and my lows can be very low. And my husband is very even keeled. One of the most important decisions you're going to make is choosing that life partner and also understanding that you will have your differences. You will probably not be on the same page ever. And that's okay. It's just finding that space where the two of you and you as a family and your extended family and friends are really happy. I admire my husband because he genuinely brings that balance to me when it feels like I am spinning from my travel, from what I'm trying to do at home, trying to do professionally. He's got that power to pull me back in and go, hey, it's okay. Focus on right now. What are you doing right now? I like your sweater. And I'm like, oh, my sweater. Oh, yes, I'm wearing a sweater. (laughs) What a beautiful answer. And I would say I have very similar sentiments with both my husband and also children. They're complimentary to me and I need that balance. But also children are the most beautiful inspiration. And what's interesting with your background and your journey is the way you look at your children has to be affected by how you grew up and all the things that you went through. And to see this raw pure beauty in your children, that must be so amazing. The other question is, do you have a mentor or role model growing up? I mean, you talk so much about the love of your family and all the aunties and uncles that were there for you, but did you have an individual role model or mentor? I did. I've been very lucky where I've had several women. I've had several incredible men that have pushed me along. I used to try to focus on who my one person was that I would look up to. And I realized that it's really a collection of different people. And I admire each one of those people in a different capacity. I admire my former boss who would push me to always do more and do it differently. And I'd sit there and go, but I've never done that before. And a little bit of motivation goes so far. I've got a couple of cousins that I would look at and go, they're such amazing powerful women. I really want to be like them. But I also want to add a little bit of an Amila spin to that. When you're in your 20s and even early 30s, a role model for me for a while was someone who was a little bit older and a little bit more experienced. But I now realize that it can be a combination of things. There's so many people on my team that are new to Lead Edge that I admire and look up to. They're straight out of college or even still in college. But it's incredible. If you're open to learning and really open to receiving, it's amazing how many different people you can learn from. I love that answer. It reminds me of Kelly Reed Brennan. She used to be the head of Goldman Sachs' ETF program, and now she's at Citadel Securities, and she leads that. And when I asked her the same question, she said the youth. 
And she didn't mean children necessarily, but she said, when I'm hiring 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds, my goodness, those conversations are so energetic and inspiring. It really changed a lot of how I think about younger people or other people to be inspired by. You're right. It's not just older people. It's just this energy that they have and this curiosity. So I love that answer. One question I added more recently is about luck, because my husband was listening to this and he talked about so many people that you interview, they're so successful, but there's one moment or one person or something that was so lucky in their life that changed everything. And we talk about this quite a bit because we're both children of immigrants and you immigrated over, but how lucky we are to be here, literally. And we're not talking luck of job, but we're talking luck of geography, luck of passport. So I'm curious for you, how much luck do you think has impacted your life? Good luck, bad luck, all of that. I love that your husband brought this up and it's such a great question. It is a topic of discussion in our household as well. And we as a family actually believe that sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. There's so much of that. I think I was very lucky just based on my pure blissful ignorance of the opportunity that came my way when I was graduating from college. I was very lucky. But I think the work ethic and then my commitment to the team and just my desire to do better that played into that role as well. Meeting Mitchell, for example, pure luck that I happened to be at Eastern Advisors where he happened to be a summer intern. He had this vision and I was lucky enough to have been a part of that very early on. So there's so much luck. I think about what can I teach my children quite a bit around luck and commitment and work. Historically, my message has been, if you're lucky enough to have an opportunity and you see it as an opportunity, hold on to that and try to make it work, whatever that looks like for you. But that luck piece is super important. I agree. And when I reflect on it, I'm always grateful because my goodness, it could have been so different. And I could have been a child in Vietnam, just like a lot of my cousins are. And the world is so different from my parents' efforts to get us here. All that stuff. It's just pure luck of the parents you were born to. So I think about that a lot. Yeah. And to your point, location, geography. Now, I ask all my guests at the end of the show, just given the name of the podcast, Growth From Failure, a listener, he's listened to every single episode and he goes, Yin, this is not enough failure for me. You should rename the show. The URL was available back four or five years ago, and that's why I bought growthfromfailure.com. I love the words failure and growth because I think they go hand in hand. And so it doesn't have to be the F word of failure, but a struggle or a moment of adversity. And for you, listening to your story, there's so much adversity, but I'm curious if there is one moment or a couple of moments of deep struggle or failure that you can share that transformed your life and I'm guessing helped you grow in a way. There's one defining moment and it's attached to my entire family. When we immigrated to New York, we had come as visitors and then try to convert that visa into a long-term stay. The process at the time was a little bit easier. We were given a social security card. We have identification. It was a much easier process prior to 9-11. But there was a moment where we were told by the immigration court that we actually had to leave. We had to leave the United States. We couldn't stay. I was underage and I didn't really fully understand what that meant. And my parents got a lawyer and they got more lawyers. And I remember I was graduating from high school and this had continued. It was an ongoing immigration case. And I think that was really painful because for a moment, it felt like no matter what I did, it wasn't going to be enough. That wasn't going to change our immigration status. And that wasn't going to allow me to progress in my career. The turning moment where 
there was a couple of different nights where I was awake all night thinking about what will happen at our next hearing and what if A happens, what if B happens, how do I pivot? What do I do? I'm going to be graduating high school and then I'm going to be graduating college. What am I going to do? And that stress level, it's constantly humming underneath. I'm an extrovert, so I will show up to every event smiling no matter what goes on. And that was kind of a commitment to myself. The underlying energy was always, there's a very high chance that you can't stay here. There's a very high chance that you can't stay here. And if you can't stay here, where are you going to go? And that went on for a long time when we finally broke through and got out of that immigration mess. It was liberating. I definitely cried quite a bit, but I don't think I'd ever cried more than in that moment of knowing all these years of this underlying stress just disappeared. And it was also a learning moment because one of the things someone had shared with me is, and you can spin this in a negative way or a positive way. I take it in a very positive way, given the stress level I was going through during that time. Nothing in life lasts forever. None of the bad and unfortunately, none of the good. It's probably not the best way to go through life if you're a pessimist, but if you're an optimist, when the bad happens, you're like, this is not going to last forever. And for me, those years are my benchmarking years for when I'm really, really stressed out. And it really feels like I'm not sure that I can get through this right now. I think back on, oh, wait, nothing lasts forever. And this moment too will go away. You just have to get through it. There's no other way. There's really no other way. You have to get through it. So put on whatever face you need to put on, put on whatever mask helps you get through it. Just do it. I was listening to an interview with someone giving advice to a younger person and they were asking about job advice. And they said, this is a very simple thing to remember, but just always remember this too shall pass. When you can't get a job, when you are at a low, just remember this too shall pass. But he said, equally important, when you're experiencing the highs, the thrill, Also remember, this too shall pass. And it's the idea to remember, to your point, it keeps going and to make sure you have that mindset of nothing is permanent, good or bad. And we talked about this before we started recording, but fun performance. You could be a hero one year being up 40, 50, 60% or having an IPO. That's amazing. And the following year, which many have seen this year, it falls. And so again, this too shall pass. What we share our commitment to our kids is teaching your kids that resilience that's really hard for me. I don't know how to do it, but I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. You're probably doing a better job than you think because the way that you have a very clear growth mindset and it's filled with kindness and empathy, they pick up on that. The way you're describing that you picked up with your mom, things are happening and you don't know it's subtle, but kids pick up on all those little feelings. You had mentioned that the lead edge investor base is really powerful with all the C-level, C-suite folks, all the amazing folks that are in your LP base. And you've seen that success comes in many different forms. What does success mean to you? That is a very powerful question. I think of a couple of different pillars. When I think about success, one of the struggles for a lot of women in our space is striking that balance and understanding that really there is no balance and just knowing what you need to let go of or pick up on to keep things going. For me, I've got daily success, weekly success, and then the overall success of me as an individual and then us as a family. And on my daily basis, I count it to be successful if I'm not yelling at my children. If I can get through the morning without raising my voice, I've really succeeded. 
it's a win. However, it's a rare win that I get. And I think that's on me. On weekly basis, I'm successful if I've had a moment with my husband where it feels like we've had a bonding moment. And that could be a minute. That could be five minutes. It could be 15 minutes. You just don't know when you're going to feel that connection. And then the professional success, if I can keep doing what I'm doing right now long term for as long as I enjoy it and for as long as it feels like the right fit for the team and for me, I would be super grateful. I love the role. I love the opportunity to have conversations with lots of different people and continue to learn. And from growth, right? Having been at the team since day one, we're now 55 people. It looks very different. And for the first time in my career, I'm part of what I would consider a large organization. <laughs> large and successful and very notable. I mean, it's not just in our little ecosystem. Lead Edge is a very prominent firm that you've been there since day one. So incredible. Last question. What's next for Emilia Damdanovic? So many different ways I can answer this. Next is a lot of travel. That's coming up and I'm very excited. I'm going to Tokyo and Seoul for the first time. I've spent some time in China and Hong Kong, Singapore, some more Southeast Asia, but I've never been to Japan or Korea. So I'm very excited. We've got a couple of different family trips coming up. That's one of our commitments. After having spent so many years in the US being blocked within the US because I couldn't actually leave, our commitment is that every summer we travel to Europe to see my family. So we were there this summer. We spent quite some time in Paris and Montenegro, where most of my family is, and in Kosovo. So my kids got to meet a lot of my cousins. Every winter prior to COVID, our commitment was we go to Asia and we take our children to Hong Kong to meet my husband's side of the family because my husband's Chinese and German. At least two international stamps on our passports is my commitment. So I'm searching for my next family international trip. I love it. Well, Amila, I had a blast in this conversation, beautiful conversation, beautiful soul. And I find your kindness and your true empathy for people so inspiring. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. 